despite the fact that we are all talking have a clothes. steep high class <laughs> <laughs> no pairs just steep high yeah. Yeah. Uh, not in that sense okay so um, the papers that were in on time I will <laughs> no one's here for them um, the papers that were in on time <laughs> I think only one of you is here who got the paper in on time that's very funny um, no two of you are here okay uh, the papers that are in on time, you'll get back. Um, the other papers I hope to have back by Wednesday or Thursday. I think I will. Um, yeah, yeah, I, um, one way or another I will. Um, what? So there are no admitted students didn't come to Spencer Milton. It's so hard to believe. I know, it's You'd think amazing. they'd be knocking down the doors. Seriously. Spencer. He Milton. means it ironically, but I really mean it. I mean, Look, seriously. an admitted student now, just <laughs> one of us. <laughs> Well, he was admitted. He was admitted. <laughs> Not only admitted, but matriculated. Uh, okay, so now three people who got their papers in on time. I don't want to name names, but three people who are in on time can get their papers back at the end of class. <laughs> All right. Um, we were uh, looking at, huh, look at that. Uh, four people who got their papers <laughs> in on time can pick up their papers at the end of class. Um, we were looking at um, the interesting ambiguity. Um, so I just I'll just repeat this: the interesting ambiguity at the end of the invocation of Book One, which is um, an ambiguity about who gets to judge what. Um, so Milton comes and he says, "Here I'm going to justify the ways of God to man." Um, as you will see when we get to Samson. Um, and I think I'm just going to say this once because it's vaguely interesting. Um, there's some debate about the order of Milton's work. Um, that is, and in particular, there's a debate about whether Samson is his last major work. Um, if you take his three major poems to be as you ought to, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes, um, there's some debate about whether the order of publication, Samson was published the year he died, um, Paradise Lost was published seven years earlier, and um, Paradise Regained um, after Paradise Lost. Um, there's some uh, debate, nevertheless, about the order that he wrote them in. And uh, one possibility is that Samson is the earliest of the poems. Um, and there are even those who claim that Paradise Lost is the latest. Um, that is that Paradise Regained, obviously with some other title, or probably with some other title, but that Paradise Regained was essentially written before Paradise Lost. Um, that's not the standard order, ordering of the poems, and the debate about Samson is a much hotter one than the debate about Paradise Regained. It's kind of um, provocative to think Paradise Regained was written first, but it's not something that people have really followed up. Um, but the standard order, although, this, although it is debated, is Paradise Lost followed by Paradise Regained followed by Samson. Um, Samson, in Samson there's a line, the chorus is explaining to Samson who's complaining about how bad things are for him despite the fact that he actually didn't um, do anything that really terrible. Um, the chorus says to him, 
just are the ways of God and justifiable to man. And the chorus in Samson is making it clear in its version of that last line of the invocation of Book One that men are those who are deciding whether the ways of God are just. That is to say, the case is being made for a jury of men. It's not only that the ways of God are just and we should believe it, it's we can show men that the ways of God are just. It doesn't mean that we can show the rebel angels that the ways of God are just. It says something about human beings that we are not totally depraved for whatever reason we're not totally depraved. The Calvinist doctrine is a doctrine of total depravity. That is that we can't trust our judgment in any way because of original sin. Our judgment is absolutely untrustworthy and therefore nothing depends on us for salvation. It's the pure mercy and kindness of God that will allow some of us to be saved. Calvinism makes the argument that it's not unfair that predestination isn't unfair to those who are damned because we all deserve to be damned. If God is nice enough to save some, that's gravy on the human meatloaf, icing on the human cake. Um, I guess it's gravy on the human mashed potato, <laughs> icing on the human cake. We all deserve to be damned. Hamlet says something similar when he says, Polonius says, I will use the players according to their deserts. And Hamlet replies, better, better, use each man according to his deserts and who should escape whipping. That is, we all deserve to be whipped. But according to the Calvinist and Lutheran doctrine, um, God actually is nice enough to spare some people, all of whom deserve to be damned. And that's the doctrine of total depravity. We all deserve to be damned. We're all sinners, and our sins are so great that we deserve to be damned. But Milton doesn't have that doctrine. So Milton says, actually, human judgment is such that we can see that God is just. We can see that that's true. We're entitled to use our own judgment. So that would be justifiable to men. Just are the ways of God. They're all just. And they're justifiable to men. And so that reading of book one, come on in. You have missed so many classes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's not too late. It, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for you to do better than an A minus. <laughs> that's college. Um... <laughs> the idea then is that all of God's ways are just all of them just are the ways of God all of them and it's humans who are in a position to see the truth of that that's the Samson version just are the ways of God and justifiable to men the other possibility that we looked at was that 
he can justify to any rational being in the universe not all his ways, but the ways he treats men. That is, just are the ways of God to men and justifiable to everyone, to all beings. That's the other possible way of reading the end of the invocation of, to book one. Now, I think the ambiguity is intentional there. And again, you might want to make an argument either way, depending on whether you see Samson as earlier than Paradise Lost or later. If it's later, it could be an explanation or a clarification of something in Paradise Lost. If it's earlier, it could be, no, actually, I want to get both meanings into it. There are arguments to be made either way. Doug, did you want to say something? No, I'm sorry. I'm just nodding. Okay. Um, <laughs> good, good, good. Um, I hope this means you've replaced nicotine with caffeine. I'm hoping. No, all no, right. <laughs> no, it's, it's just... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's worthwhile thinking about whether he... It seems almost certain that he doesn't mean only just are the ways of God to man and justifiable to everyone. There are three different possibilities now. Um, one is justifiable to all rational beings in the universe... <clears throat> The way he treats men, maybe not the way he treats the angels or the way he treats sin and death or the way he treats the animals or whatever, but the way he treats men, that can be justified to all beings in the universe. That's one possibility. The other possibility, a second possibility, is um, all his ways are just and humans are capable of judging that and seeing that. And the third possibility is um, he wants you to think both. Now, the first possibility, I think, is not going to be the case. That is, I don't think that um, Milton is officially, or his narrator is officially saying, um, only pay attention to how he treats human beings. Um, the fact that he's really um, vicious to and unfair to all other beings <clears throat> in the universe is of no concern to you. Um, I think that the possibility, however, the debate in Paradise Lost is did he treat humans well enough that all beings in the universe would have to acknowledge that he didn't mistreat us? Or did he treat everything in the universe justly? And are humans in a position, are humans the kind of being who can see that? So see, I think that's, if you see the end of the, the invocation of book one as genuinely ambiguous, which I think it is, I think the ambiguity is between two rather than three possibilities. Um, the two possibilities being that it is ambiguous or simply that it's um, his ways are just and justifiable to men. And if the ambiguity is there, then you get the debate in the poem. And the debate in the poem comes in in a very interesting way because it brings in that third important party to the whole debate in Paradise Lost. Not only rebel angels versus the loyal angels, or not only hell versus heaven, but also earth. And also what humans think and do and feel. And um, if the poem is about humans' capacity to judge God, if that's what the poem is about, then thinking 
about human judgment is going to become more and more central to the poem. May, and maybe it's going to mean, actually, the rebel angels, they don't have the capacity to judge God. And that would be um, a reasonable thing to say. That is, everything that they say about God, you might say, only pride and a depraved pride could make Satan think that. And as we see in book four, he kind of acknowledges that in the passage where suddenly he turns everything around. Um, A passage we'll look at in a minute. But it would also mean that the loyal angels can't judge God. That is to say, or there'd be at least be an implication, that the loyal angels simply do what God says because they're following orders. And that's what Satan has complained about. In other words, Satan may be perfectly capable of judging the goodness of the loyal angels and seeing that goodness as simply compliance and conformity with how things are. Custom and awe is what Satan says. God rules by custom and awe rather than because of his his greatness and virtue. And here's something that might suggest that. So if you go to book, let's go to book three and let's look at the the loyal angels. Um, Go to book three. You can join the table and look on with someone if you want. What's your name? Hi. Welcome. So, what do we have time for this? We did. Uh, Started around line 80 of book three. So what's just happened is Satan has gotten to the coasts of light, to use that amazing phrase, Um, and he's on the bare outside of this world that seemed firm land, embosomed without firmament. And then God looks at him. Him God beholding, this is line 77, Him God beholding from His prospect high, wherein past, present, future He beholds, thus to His only Son foreseeing, spake. Um, So again, this is a way of imaging God as outside of time. He's over time. He looks down at all of time as though at a picture, and He sees all of it at once, as though at a page of a comic book. Um, and he can see every panel simultaneously. He can look at any panel he wants. And thus to his only son, foreseeing, spake. Um, And it's not quite clear what foreseeing modifies. Is it God who's foreseeing, or is it the son who is foreseeing? And that's, that's intentional. And what he says to his son is, Only begotten son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary? whom no bounds prescribed, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, 
nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So look at his rage, and look, he's so angry that nothing can stop him. Um, so bent he seems on desperate revenge. He's so angry, so bent on desperate revenge, that the bounds prescribed, the bars of hell, all the chains heaped on him there can't keep him interrupted from our world, from the world of humanity and the world of heaven. Um, what's the joke there? Or do you want to take this absolutely seriously? Well, God kind of let him do it, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what the narrator said in um, book one. He said he would still be chained to the lake, except that the high permission of all ruling heaven allowed him to escape. Why? So that he could do even worse things and get punished even more. Um, so it's basically, the narrator's already told us um, God gave him enough rope to hang himself a second time. Um, but God is making, is saying to the son something that is either false, God, he's God, God says. <laughs> Me, he said. He's so powerful that we can't keep him in hell. It's awful. Which isn't true. Or he's making a joke at Satan's expense. Look at him. Nothing can stop him. I'm so scared. And he's going to say the same thing later in book five. He's going to say, now nearly it concerns us to be sure of our divinity, he says to the son. Look at Satan. He's going to shake our throne. What are we going to do? And the son replies, rightly hast thou him in derision, father. That is, the son treats this as a joke. Now, a lot of people defend God in Paradise Lost by saying that he's a very plain speaker, that Satan shows you what high, sublime, rhetorical language can do, how convincing it can be, how powerful it can be. But God, he just speaks plainly. But the very first thing he says is a nasty joke. It's not just plain speaking. It's really dripping, venomous irony of the kind that it's hard to feel is pleasant. Really, it is. So, so bent he seems on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. So he's, it's going to, everything he's trying to do is going to hit him rather than us. And now through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light directly towards the new created world and man there plays with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. So he's going to this new created world and man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. Someone paraphrase that? Someone not Vino paraphrase <laughs> that? Steve, paraphrase that? If he can't forcefully repossess Earth, then he'll try to twist them subtly. Okay, so he's heading towards his new created world, and towards what else? Man. And man, who's placed there. And why? Why is he heading? It's basically what you taught us about comas. It's that the worst sin is to corrupt 
within the internal corruption, not the external. Good. So worse by some false guile pervert. He can harm him physically the way Comus can the lady, but what, what would be worse is to harm him, is to corrupt him, is to harm him morally. Okay. So who's got the purpose to assay? Whose purpose is it to assay if him by force he can destroy? Um, Satan's. It's his purpose to see whether he can destroy man by force, or worse, by some false guile, pervert him. Um, remember we were looking at the possible ambiguities in these past participle constructions? Okay. What if, with purpose to assay, doesn't modify he wings his way? That is, we're diagramming the sentence pretty much as, and now through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. He wings his way towards man to see this. What if... It means that Satan is God's tool. Yeah. So it's God's purpose to... Yeah. So he's going towards his new created world and man there placed. Why was man placed there? To be tested. With purpose to assay if him by force Satan can destroy. So, whose purpose placed man there? God. God. And who's a saying whether Satan can destroy him? God. Yeah. So, so suddenly, <coughs> these two, this phrase, with purpose to assay, is a phrase that applies equally to God and to Satan. They are united in purpose. It's like and, Job. Sorry? It's like Job. Yeah, yeah, nice, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, Job is going to be really important, especially in Paradise Regained and also in Samson, but Paradise Regained uh, is especially a Jobian story. Um, yeah, God and Satan are united in testing man to see what will happen. So why does God put man on earth? So that Satan should find him available. So that God can test him. Just as Satan tests it, yeah. It's also a sort of reflection of the complete disparate ideas that each has, well, that Satan has of his own independence. He thinks he's absolutely wonderful and that he can, he has the choice to do this, but in actual fact, God is using him. Right, yeah. Um, however, the fact that God makes Satan an instrument when Satan does what he wants to do um, is troubling about God. Yeah. So. God has now had um, fewer than 20 lines of um, talk, 10 lines really, 12 lines, um, and he's coming out as a kind of unpleasant character. Machiavellian. Machiavellian and, um, and uh, self-righteous, which I guess is okay if you're God, but still, <laughs> it's an unpleasant tone. I mean, if God can't be self-righteous, who can? Um, with purpose to save him by force, he can destroy. Whose purpose? Who's a saying, God or Satan? Or worse, by some false gal pervert. And shall pervert, because God knows the future. It's going to happen. Why? For man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny. Yep. So all will fall. Whose fault? And here he's speaking of both Satan and man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's essentially saying, not me. But the rhetoric of the poem is saying, well, kind of, yes, you. You put him there. 
you and Satan were both trying to do the same thing. And if Satan caused him to fall, as you're about to say, that it's partly Satan's fault, then it actually is partly your fault, too. That's what the lines that precede this are making it all the harder for God to say, it's not my fault, as they used to say on Apple. Did they still do that? used to be that you had voice synthesizing in Apple when, when you had some ridiculous crash. It was OS 9. You would get this strange, um, strangely accented voice that would say, it's not my fault. <laughs> You've never heard that? Uh, it's hilarious. It's just the worst thing. It's not my fault. So that's God. Um, last Thursday, we were, we were remembering Atlantis Morissette as God. And now it's the voice of OS9. (laughs) Whose fault? Whose but his own? Ingrate! He had of me all he could have. So, now, when we see Adam and Eve, which we're about to do in book four, the first thing we see them doing is singing hymns to God, morning and evening, and loving him and loving the life he gave them. How do you think they would feel? Just, you know, if they knew that in the meantime, he's up there looking at them and saying, ingrate. Is it in the meantime? Well, it's not. Well, no, that's exactly the right question. But the answer is, he does seem to be picking one aspect of humanity and ignoring a different aspect. That is to say, he's not, there should be pity here, I think. If I were God, there would be pity. Um, and it's, it's sort of parental pity. Imagine um, a new parent looking at a very cute baby who's just full of love for the parent and saying, but I know you're going to go to college and not call and be selfish and, um, and go through adolescent hatred of me. You ingrate to the baby. Um, we do know that. They knew it about you. You'll know it if you have kids about them. This, the, this is just for this hypothetical. Um, <laughs> but so what? The human experience and the experience that the son is also having because he's the one who is in the present time. It's God who is telling him about the future. The son can't see the future. It's actually really important to see that the first consequence of Milton's anti-Trinitarianism, remember that the Son is not God. There's only one God for Milton. That and the, the Son's sun is sight the first, is limited. That the Son's sight is limited. The Son only has human experience. This is going to come back in spades, by the way, in Paradise Regained. So just to tell you this beforehand for when you read it, Paradise Regained is Jesus he's not named Jesus in Paradise Lost because Jesus is his name on earth. It's the name that Mary and Joseph gave him. Um, Jesus in Paradise Regained is an extremely wise and good person. And he has heard a prophecy that the Son of God is going to take human form. But he doesn't know He thinks he might be the one, but he doesn't know. That is to say, Milton's doctrine of the Incarnation, and it's very important to know this about Milton, is that the Son becomes fully human 
And by being fully human, he is born without memory of who he was in heaven. This is an idea out of Plato. That is, Plato says we are all immortal souls. We've been around forever. But when we're born on this earth, when our souls take on bodily form, we saw this also in the Garden of Adonis. Mm, I was just about to say that. When our souls take on bodily form, we forget the heavenly glories we have known and that imperial palace whence we came. I should write that down. That's actually Wordsworth, the intimation's out. That's Wordsworth's description of the Platonic doctrine. Um, you forget at birth the immortal regions that you come from. So too does the Son of God. When he is born, he is born fully human. But even in heaven, he's the Son, the first of created beings, and no more than Satan does he see the future. So the Father here is telling him the future, which is that he will fall. Whose fault was it? He was an ingrate, is an ingrate, will be an ingrate. And so there the human beings are living in the present just as Jesus lives in the present, or just as the Son here lives in the present. And yet he's being asked to judge humanity by the future. And by a future that the Father presumably can foresee is also finite, that eventually humans will be saved. But somehow that doesn't matter. Yeah. Just on the topic of them, of humanity being ungrateful, they, I mean, at least how I read it was, they are praising God and his works in the beginning of book five, but in a way they're almost urging all of his other works to be thankful. Uh-huh. And there's kind of, like, them doing that is like celebrating the glory of everything he's created, but they're not, I don't know if they, maybe I overread it, but they don't seem to explicitly thank him. They say like the trees are beautiful and they should wave like their tops in praise. The sun is like glorious and should shine in praise. That kind of thing. Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, I think that's I think that's worth thinking about um, and see whether there isn't gratitude um, later on as well. Certainly, both Satan and Adam agree after their falls that um, they weren't sufficiently clear on the idea of gratitude. Um, and part of what it would mean not to be sufficiently clear on the idea of gratitude is that um, gratitude confers um, a sense of, of anxiety. What both Satan and Adam say after their fall, Satan in book four and Adam in book ten, is that um, the very idea of gratitude is one, and just think this is true in your own lives, that if you really feel grateful to someone, just think about the knots you, you get caught in trying to show them that you actually genuinely do feel grateful, that you're not just saying it. Um, but the more you say, the more it sounds like you might just be saying it. Um, and even as you try to describe that, you're afraid that that sounds false. So that somehow gratitude is a requirement to feel a certain way when you're also being um, helped in such a way that you no longer have to meet a requirement by yourself. That is, the person you're grateful to has helped you to do something that you couldn't do by yourself, and yet suddenly there's another requirement, that of gratitude, which is replacing 
the requirement that they helped you with. And so gratitude always, when you're aware of a need to express it, you can feel gratitude without needing to express it. But if you feel a need to express gratitude, there's always anxiety there. Um, it's partly anxiety because suddenly you owe them. And um, it may be that the truest and purest form of gratitude is one without anxiety and therefore without specifying, without being explicit. But I think it's a really good point and one worth thinking, thinking about. You know. Um, but doesn't he also say that there was no need for that anxiety, Satan's soliloquy, yeah. when he says that feeling that gratitude itself repays? Yes, yeah. Um, but let's look at that in, in, okay. in a day, in a minute, by which I mean tomorrow. Um, by which you mean Wednesday? Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> by tomorrow I mean Wednesday, and by a minute I mean tomorrow. And by Wednesday I probably mean Thursday. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> All right. So... Ingrate, he had of me all he could have. I made him just and right. So here's God's doctrine. I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. And we talked about this a little bit last time, what it means that the um, freedom to fall is a freedom to change what you are. It's not the magic, it's not the fruit that makes you fall. It's eating the fruit. Oh, it's even wanting to eat it. <clears throat> well, Deciding wanting it. to eat it is a thought going through the... Um, mind of, of yeah no 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 if the fruit were snuck into their fruit salad by Satan if it were that fraud, fraud they wouldn't have fallen mm. Satan plucks the fruit and sneaks some in it's the will to disobey it's the it? will to disobey but also the action of disobeying yeah, she dreamed about it yeah, before yeah. She when Satan inserted venom in through her ears very Hamlet like yeah, yes yeah okay so sufficient to have stood though free to fall such I created all the ethereal powers and spirits, both them who stood and them who failed. Freely they stood who stood and fell who fell. Not free, what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance, constant faith or love, where only what they needs must do appeared, not what they would. So doing what must be done means nothing. That's what God is saying. That what must happen is has no meaning on any deep level of um, the mind's intention. So hang on to that. What they needs must do appeared. If there weren't free will, then everything would just be a machine. Mm -hmm. What praise could they receive? What pleasure I from such obedience paid when will and reason, and then importantly, reason also is choice. That is, you have to figure out what the right thing to do is, and that is making a choice. It's not that you can say, oh, this is clearly the better thing to do, therefore I will do it. But you choose to follow reason. Reason is a choice, and reasoning is how you make a choice, or one way to make a choice. That's a very important parenthesis. Reason also is choice. When will and reason, if it were all <coughs> predetermined, useless and vain, a freedom both despoiled, made passive both, had served necessity, not me. That would have been bad. They, therefore, as to right belonged, so were created. They were created free, nor can justly accuse their maker. So here comes justice again. He can't be justly accused, or their making, or their fate. Adam is precisely going to do that when he says in the lines that are the epigraph to Frankenstein, did I request thee, maker, 
out of my clay to mold me? Did I require thee to make out of darkness to promote me and make me man? He says, I didn't ask to be born, so why am I being punished? But God is already forestalling that. You were made enough to, you were made perfect with free will. You could stand. Nor can they justly accuse their maker or their making or their fate as if, as if, predestination overruled their will, disposed by absolute decree or high foreknowledge, as though I decreed that they would sin, or as though foreknowledge were high enough to make them do what they did. They themselves decreed their own revolt, not I. If I foreknew, foreknowledge had no influence on their fault, which had less, no less proved uncertain, excuse me, which had no less proved certain unforeknown. So without least impulse or shadow of fate or aught by me immutably foreseen, they trespass authors to themselves in all, both what they judge and what they choose. For so I form them free, and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. I else must change their nature and revoke the high decree, unchangeable eternal, which ordained their freedom. So the only thing which won't change is that they're free. Now, the tenses here are very interesting to follow through. We won't now. But it's not clear when he's talking about the rebel angels and when he's talking about humans. He's lumping them together. But a lot of this is past tense, even though he's supposedly talking about the future. So, he says, well, let's just finish his speech. They themselves ordained their fall. The first sort, by their own suggestion, fell. That is, they convinced themselves to fall. They corrupted themselves. Self-tempted, self-depraved. <coughs> Man falls, present tense or future. Deceived by the other first. Man, therefore, shall find grace. Finally, a real future. The other, none. In mercy and justice, both through heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel, but mercy first and last shall brightest shine. So he speaks all the angels and the blessed spirits elect, um, feel the joy ineffable of what he's saying, and then the son replies, and he does something he's going to do over and over, which is he picks up on the best thing that God says and pushes that. The son, it's very worth seeing how much the son manages God. How much what God says, the son paraphrases. He's like a courtier. He's like a, well, he's like a, he's actually more like Jeeves. That is to say, he's a really good courtier who gets his um, Bertie king. Bertie Woodhouse. Yeah. A Bertie Worcester. Worcester. P.G. Woodhouse. Mm. He gets his king to um, think that he's committed to something that he actually hasn't quite. Not, not here yet, but in a few minutes. So, O oh, Father, he says, gracious was that word which closed thy sovereign sentence. So he's pushing on the idea of grace, namely that man should find grace, for which both heaven and earth shall high extol thy praises with the innumerable sound of hymns and sacred songs, because otherwise, go to line 168, thy goodness and thy greatness both would be questioned and blasphemed without defense. So if you didn't save humanity, your goodness and your greatness would be questioned and blasphemed. 
without defense, you couldn't defend yourself. Now that's a, actually an extraordinary thing if you think about it for the son to say, for us to get to at the end of his speech. Because what God is saying is, out of my own free will and my own excessive goodness, what I'm going to do is, despite the fact that humans didn't have to fall, and they did, and they all deserve to go to hell, I'm going to show some mercy to them. Because Satan had a part in their fall. And the son says, of course you are. Because if you didn't show mercy, you would have no defense against the worst blasphemy said against you. They would all be true. And if you think about that, what that means is that anyone who is damned, according to the son's logic, is would open God if a single human being goes to hell forever. God would be open to questioning and blasphemy without defense. The son is working hard here towards universal salvation because it's not going to be the case that some of the fallen deserve to die. You either have to say they all deserve to die, but God saves some because he's good, or that none deserve to die and God is required to save them all. And if they all deserve to die, then you can't blaspheme God without defense. He has a defense. They all deserve to die. They freely fell. But if that's not a defense, he has no defense for the damnation of anyone. God doesn't think that, but the Son thinks that. And that's, what he, that's the way he's always pushing things. So... The great creator says, O son in whom my soul hath chief delight, son of my bosom, son who art alone, my word, my wisdom, and effectual might. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's the son, as we will see. Adam and Eve don't know this. But when Adam talks to God, he's actually talking to the son who appears to him as God's representative. Um, the theology in Paradise Lost can get abstruse, and it doesn't matter, and Milton isn't particularly wanting you to think, oh, wait, that's the son? who um, um, Adam is talking to in book seven, but it is the Son. Um, the Son and the Holy Spirit come down to create the world. Um, so he says, everything you've said I agree with. Um, man shall, but then we get the and not quite. Man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will. Yet not of will in him, but grace in me freely about saved saved, once more will I renew his lapsed powers. So God is kind of saying, well, anyone who wants to be saved will be saved, fine. Um, but those who don't, it's because in a sense they had a chance and didn't take it. There's a second fall that those who don't want to be saved will undertake. But if they fell when they were perfect, of course they're going to fall once we're fallen. So it's an iffy argument. At any rate, um, let's go on. Line 188 or so. I will clear their senses dark what may suffice and soften 
stony hearts, to pray, repent, and bring obedience due, to pray a repentance and obedience due, though but endeavored with sincere intent, mine ear shall not be slow, mine eye not shut, and I will place within them as a guide my umpire conscience, whom if they will hear, light after light, well used they shall attain, and by the end persisting, safe arrive. So listen to your conscience, Milton slash God is saying, this my long sufferance in my day of grace, they who neglect and scorn shall never taste. But hard be hardened, blind be blinded more, that they may stumble on and deeper fall, and none but such from mercy I exclude. And then there's a catch. Here's the fine print. But yet all is not done. Man, disobeying, disloyal breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead and so losing all to expiate his treason hath not left but to destruction sacred and devote he with his whole posterity must die. Must die. So it has to happen. He's given everything up by falling. He can't save himself at all. There is no way that he can pay for the sin that he's committed. Because everything that he has, he has through corruption. He can't pay back for the crime that he's done. Die he or justice must. So that's the line that Pound hated so much, but we can unpack it. If he doesn't die, justice will die. He has to die or justice will die because I can't do something unjust, says God. So now we're getting into the bad cop, God is bad cop moment unless for him some other able, and as willing, pay the rigid satisfaction death for death. So that's kind of bizarre, which is someone's got to die, and if he's not going to die, then someone has to die for him, because really what sets the balance right is that someone get punished. doesn't matter who. It matters that there be punishment. So this is God like Justice Scalia. <laughs> there's a crime, there has to be punishment. Actually, Jeff Jacoby has said similar things. He said, you know, there's some crimes that are so awful that um, society couldn't stand that um, the perpetrator not be punished. And occasionally this will mean that innocent people get punished for crimes they didn't do. But that's okay because it would be worse for no one to be punished. Um... And Scalia agrees with that. That's the shock the conscience thing. So die here, justice must. It would just be too terrible for this injustice not to be um, corrected. We've seen a lot of this in the Second World War. A lot of, lot of uh, retaliation against the resistance by the shooting of innocents, the people they were working for. Unless for him some other able and is willing and willing their matters, pay the rigid satisfaction death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime? And just, the unjust to save, dwells in all heaven charity so dear. So remember the question we were asking was, um, do the loyal angels, the good angels, those singing psalms to God right now, just give me one more minute, do the good angels 
Are they in a position to judge God? So here God says, who's going to volunteer to die for humanity? To become mortal. He doesn't say to become mortal for three days and then come back to heaven. He just says to become mortal, to die, the way they're going to die. Who's willing to do that? He asked, but all the heavenly choir stood mute. And notice, that's a strong line. Not all the angels stood mute, but all the heavenly choir stood mute. Those whose very office is to sing were mute. This mirrors what happens in hell. Yeah, well, right. Everyone's like, who will go to earth? And everyone's exactly. quiet. Yeah. And then Satan's like, I will go. Right. So the same thing. And so all would have died except that the Son of God says, no, I will do it. You said there would be grace. I'm going to do it. And um, I am different from everyone else. And what he says is not the rigid satisfaction death for death, but what he says, just notice this, and then we'll end at line 236 or so. Um, he's going to bring atonement. Man can never bring atonement for himself or offering meat. Indebted and undone hath none to bring. Behold me then, me for him, life for life. So how's he changed what God said? Death for death turns into life for life. Um, I agree with you. Life for life, he's saying. Um, again, just notice how often he does that. Um, and, but also, the main thing to notice is the only beings in this poem in a position to judge God and with the moral power to judge God, according to Milton, are humans. Not the rebel angels, but not the loyal angels either. So that's really crucial. Okay, quiz through book six on Wednesday, by which I mean tomorrow, by which I mean really right now. <laughs> no. Okay, Wednesday, quiz to book six.